the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we thank you for the words that we have just read, and we ask that you would speak them to us as we've prayed in our previous song, that your voice would be the voice that is heard above all other voices. By your spirit, would you take the words and would you bring them into our hearts and transform our lives to reflect your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, we are making our way through the book of Exodus this year in 2019 with several breaks uh, through the summer, but we are, we've landed in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and we're kind of slowing down a little bit to do a ten-part sermon series through the ten words, the Ten Commandments that God gives to the people of Israel on the mountain. And uh, this sermon series will lead us up through the rest of 2019 as we continue through this series this morning. We're on the third commandment. We have already looked at the two previous weeks at the first and the second. And just before getting into the third commandment, I want to frame it um, so for your understanding, so that you understand perhaps why the third commandment is where the third commandment is. You notice the first word that God speaks to the people of Israel in verse 2 is that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And we said that that is the foundational commandment underneath all the other ones. It's what's holding the rest of the structure up, is this idea that God and God alone is to be the exclusive object of our loyalty and devotion. Last week we looked at the second commandment, which falls on the heels of that. If God is to be the sole object of our worship, then we are to worship him how he desires to be worshipped, according to his own revelation of himself, not according to the revelation that we invent. And that's primarily what's communicated in the second commandment, that you shall not make for yourself a carved image of God, that you bow down to worship and serve a false god. So the first commandment deals with not having false gods, and the second commandment deals with not worshiping the true God falsely. And we said that the reason that Moses gives and that God gives uh, for the commandment to be, to, to, for God to have no other, for us to have no other gods before gods and to not bow down to carved images is because God is a jealous God. He is a God who is jealous for his own name, his own glory, his own reputation. And so if we live lives that minimize his weightiness, that minimize his glory, that obscure his value, then we are sinning against his glory and his jealousy is, in, is, is provoked. He also loves us. He desires that we be his exclusive possession. And so just as a husband is jealous for his wife and a wife likewise for her husband, so God is jealous for our allegiance as well. And so that brings us to the third commandment. If God is jealous and that jealousy is rooted in his glory, then it's very, we must be very careful the way we carry his name. The way we carry his name matters to him. So this is what the third commandment is dealing with. You know, there's a lot of talk these days, and it's perhaps it's been going on for multiple centuries now, but the, the whole idea of the importance of trademarks, right? Trademarks have value in our culture. Trademarks um, bring money to the, the holder of the trademark, and the trademark is designed to preserve um, the, the intellectual property of someone so that if someone uses that, without appropriate uh, uh, 
remuneration or, or money, then, then that is a violation of the person who holds the trademark. So one way for a, for a modern American to begin to understand the commandment, the third commandment, to treat God's name uh, holy is to think of it as trademarked property. In order to gain widespread distribution for his copyrighted repair manual, which is the Bible, and also to capture greater market share for his, for his authorized franchise, which is the church, God has graciously licensed the use of his name to anyone who will use it according to his written instructions. It needs to be understood, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. God retains legal control over his name, and he threatens serious penalties against the unauthorized misuse of his supremely valuable property. All trademark violations will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, and the prosecutor, judge, jury, and enforcer is God. So thinking about his, his name as trademark property is, I think, a helpful way to get at the heart of this commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain literally means to bear or carry his name. The word vain can also mean falsely. So the third commandment is not so much about not swearing as a call not to carry God's name in a way that damages his reputation. Paraphrasing Chris Wright, Ross Blackburn describes Israel as stewards of the Lord's name. And brothers and sisters, that's what we are as the church as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 describe us as a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a, whole, or a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then a mere two verses later, he talks about the importance of living worthy of that name so that the Gentiles, those who don't know God, will glorify God by seeing the church as the church is supposed to be. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. If they see us living contrary, which is what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, he says we're like salt that's lost its saltiness. We're like a light that's hid under a basket. We're good for nothing. In fact, we're good. We're not even not, it's not that we're not good for nothing. It's also that we are lying about God. So this morning, we're going to consider the third commandment then, that God's name is to be honored, not misused, because that name represents him. It reveals his character, and if we misuse his name, we misrepresent his character and we dishonor him. Think of the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what our lives are to be concerned with, is the hallowing of God's name, the glorifying of God's name, the preserving of the reputation of God. What are the ways we use his name properly, according to Scripture, before we get into the ways we're not supposed to use it? Well, the Psalms give us many examples of the way we are to properly use his name. We are to, according to Psalm 29, verse 2, and 96, verse 8, ascribe glory to his name. 
We are to, according to Psalm 66 and Psalm 72 and Psalm 103, sing to him, give him praise, and bless his name. We are to, according to Genesis 4.26 and others, call on his name. We are to, according to Isaiah 50, verse 10, trust in his name. And we are, according to Deuteronomy 28.58, to fear his name. To ascribe glory to it, to bless it, to call on it, to trust in it, to fear it. Phil Riken summarizes this by saying, What God forbids is not the use of his name, but the misuse of it. To be specific, we are not to use it in a vain or empty way. The specific minus that God has in mind is speaking about him carelessly, thoughtlessly, or even flippantly as if he didn't matter or really didn't exist at all. God's name has deep spiritual significance, so to treat it like something worthless is profanity in the truest sense of the word. It is to treat something holy and sacred as common and secular. To dishonor God's name in any way is to denigrate his holiness. It is a way of saying that God himself is worthless. So this morning, I want us to look at three ways this commandment is broken. And then we're going to come around to what that reveals about our need for Christ. So this commandment is broken in three ways. When God's name is attached to, first of all, what is false. What is false. When God's name, his reputation, his character, gets attached to what is false, the third commandment is violated. So what do we mean by what is false? Well, I've got three ways here. First of all, whenever we attach God's name to lies, half-truths, or ill-conceived purposes. Think of perjury in a court of law. You know that perjury happens, and it's a serious violation of the law, because we swear under oath to, quote, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Invoke God's name to tell the truth. And when we don't tell the truth, and we've attached his name to lies, half-truths, and ill-conceived purposes. The same can be said for marriage vows. When marriage vows are given in the sight of God and the couple, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife are vowing to one another to, in the presence of God, to uphold these vows, when they break those vows, they have taken God's name in vain because they have used God's name to lie. They have used God's name toward an ill-conceived purpose, toward a purpose that was not realized. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. When you make a declaration swearing by God's name, it must not be a false promise or one you do not intend to keep. Jesus told us not to swear at all. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, when he's dealing with this commandment and talking about the appropriate use of, use of oaths and vows, and vows and things like that, he says, your integrity should be such that you don't need to swear by God's name. But if you do, it needs to be in truth and in righteousness. See, what Jesus was dealing with in his day was the Pharisees, who kind of got around this law a little bit. They tried to find ways to maneuver around it by saying, well, we didn't swear by God's name. We swore by heaven. Or we swore by the... But then Jesus says, well, if you swear by heaven, is that not the throne of God? I mean, the, the principle is the same, even if the words are different. 
This is why James chapter 5, verse 12, James just tells us to let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Edmund Clowney, respected Bible teacher, says, the implication seems to be that if the name of God is dwelling in a believer by the Spirit, then the believer's word should be as good as God's and need no extra swearing. The testimony of a believer should be backed up in his godliness by the testimony of God himself. In short, a believer's words and character should be as trustworthy as those of the living God. Is that your word? Is your word as trustworthy as the word of the living God? That's the standard to which the third commandment holds us. If we're followers of Christ, shouldn't we be known as such people? We shouldn't have to invoke God's name to prove our integrity because if you're known as someone who speaks the truth, you won't have to convince people you're being truthful. Usually people who are known to be liars have to do that. So that's the first way that the commandment is broken by what is false is whenever we attach God's name to lies, half-truths, or ill-conceived purposes. A second way we attach God's name to what is false is whenever we accuse him of things that are false. Leviticus 24.16 again says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him. Now this is an old covenant law. It does not apply under the new covenant. But nevertheless, the severity of blasphemy is emphasized under the old covenant. You see it there, right? Blasphemy is essentially ascribing to God something that is not true about him. This is why in Jesus' day, when Jesus was dealing with the religious leaders and the false teachers and and even regular people who were in the community, when people came up to him and said, you know, what is talking about the unpardonable sin and what is that? And sometimes we wrestle with that, like, what's he talking about there? But literally what's going on there is when what is ascribed to the Holy Spirit is the work of the devil. People are ascribing the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. And that's blasphemy. That's taking the, name, the, the Lord's name in vain. It's saying, Jesus, you're a devil worker. And the work that you were being, that's being done through you is not the work of God. That's why it's blasphemy. But there is certainly a biblical and right way to deal with these sorts of things. You say, well, we break the third commandment whenever we accuse the Lord of things that are false. So what might be some examples of that? Well, when we believe that he's done us wrong. When we start to tell him the way our life should have gone. When we start to accuse him and blame him and say things about him that are not true. Now, brothers and sisters, there is certainly a biblical and a right way to lament when we are suffering, but to be angry with God... Or to, as some, I've heard some people say, to forgive God for how he's treated you is to call into question his character and profane his name. We don't, God doesn't need to forgive us for anything. I mean, we don't need to forgive God for anything. I'm sorry, misspoke there. He needs to forgive us for everything. But we don't, we don't get in the business of forgiving God for things. There is a biblical and a right way to lament, and we can cry out in deep anguish, and the psalmist gives us freedom to be vulnerable and passionate and even borderline messy, I mean totally messy in God's presence, but to accuse him falsely of doing us wrong is a whole other matter altogether. Job never did that. Job never did that. And he lamented a time, but he never said, God, you've done me wrong. Now, he got close. And he was even saying things that in his, in his brokenness and in his, 
and in his uh, and in his just fears and worries and concerns that 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 he was speaking he would even acknowledge though I'm speaking like a madman I don't know what I'm talking about don't listen to me and God had to come along and graciously reprove him later but Job never accused God of saying God you have sinned against me a third way that God's name is taken to what is false is when we use God's name to advance our own agendas. That is, if we use the name of God and ascribe a false sense of authority to our ideas, our plans, or our opinions, it's attaching a thus saith the Lord to something he didn't say. We must be careful not to throw around phrases like, God told me to do this. Or God wants us to do that when he has not said that. We have to be careful about slapping the name of God on the back of our plans just because we feel strongly about them. Richard Baxter calls this kind of thinking the brat of a proud mind. And that people will often take to themselves their own cause and want God to endorse it. And God has not endorsed causes that he has not spoken about. Jeremiah 23, 25 speaks to this when the prophet Jeremiah recounts the false prophets who say, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. This can happen a number of different ways. They are taking to themselves something that God has spoken. Prosperity gospel does this. When the word of God is peddled for profit, or used as a means to build a platform or to satisfy our avarice or to write books or speak at conferences or to sing Christian music to get rich. God's name is taken in vain. Now, does that mean Christians shouldn't write books? Of course not. Does that mean Christians shouldn't write music? Of course not. We should do all that. You shouldn't do it for yourself. You shouldn't do it to build a platform for yourself, a name for yourself because that's taking God's name in vain. That's using his name for your name. Shame on us, shame on me, if I were ever use God's name to make a name for myself. Also, politically, we have to be very careful and very sure that the Bible speaks clearly about our preferred policies or the newest cultural hot takes before we insist that every Christian must agree with us. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the evils of so-called same-sex marriage or abortion. I'm talking about much less serious issues. But when politicians on both sides of the aisle say, God bless you and God bless America, and that's not coming from a heart that is sincere and believing and is just an innocent expression of civil religion or God's, God's name is taken in a perfunctory or trite man, man, manner, to appeal to a political base or garner votes. Brothers and sisters, that's an abuse of God's name. And we have to be aware of things like that. Even in the Middle Ages, when Christianity was used to prop up Christendom and lots of atrocities were done, horrific atrocities were done as the work of God, it was blasphemy and it's a blatant breaking of the third commandment. Even in Germany, during World War II, the evangelical church was co-opted and named the Reich's church, the state church of Nazism. And all but a group of Lutheran and Reformed clergymen 
who insisted that Nazi theology was heretical signed the oath of allegiance to Hitler. And when those other churches did it, they took God's name in vain. When the American church in the United States supported slavery and those in Jim Crow South that were either silent or actively supportive of segregation in God's name, they took God's name in vain. See, when we confuse the kingdoms and aims of this world with God's aims and kingdom, we are bringing shame and dishonor to God's name. We pray for his kingdom to come, not ours. And we don't co-opt his name to advance our own kingdoms, whether they be private or public. We pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, not ours. So that's the first way that God's name is taken in vain, when it's assigned to what is false. Secondly, when it's assigned to what is frivolous. Two things here. First of all, when God's name is used carelessly. That's what I mean by frivolous. Do you know what the definition of Jesus Christ is in the Oxford English Dictionary? Well, the first definition, and I'll give them credit for this, it's good they have this, the central figure of the Christian religion. But the subpoint of that definition is, quote, an exclamation used to express irritation, dismay, or surprise. In the English dictionary, the third commandment is enforced as to be broken. That the second most common reference to Jesus Christ is used as an exclamation of irritation. Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is the taking of God's name carelessly. And whenever we hear or use or a Christian habitually rattle off, Oh my God, Jesus, OMG, Brothers, from everything from pizza to a parking spot. I can't help but wince and wonder, do you know God? Do you know God? So when we use the Lord's name carelessly, that's one way in which it's treated frivolously. But also, brothers and sisters, when we use the Lord's name thoughtlessly. Matthew 6, verse 7, And when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Now, let me be clear here. I am not talking about new Christians or kids, little kids, who are learning how to pray. God give us great hearts for them. God loves to hear the baby talk of his kids. He loves it when we're learning how to pray and we're stumbling through our words and we're not, we're, we're even probably saying things that are borderline heretical. And, you know, God loves that. He loves that. We're learning how to talk. But, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are mature, going on autopilot with sloppy prayer is not okay. Dear God, we just come to you today, Lord God, because God, you're awesome, God. Father, you died on the cross, Lord, and we just love you and praise you enough, Holy Spirit God. Just this sloppy, what are you saying? Are you talking to somebody? We shouldn't use God's name to take the place of a breath. Breathe. You don't have to say Lord God. Just breathe. And don't use it as a comma. Just pause. 
Or take the classic pre-offering, stereotypical Southern Baptist deacon prayer. I heard as a young Christian and thought, do those guys, I don't, I don't think they believe in God. And I was a young Christian, I didn't hear, there was nothing authentic about it whatsoever. Lord, every Sunday, Lord God, we pray that you bless the missionaries on the home and foreign field. Lead, guide, and direct us. Amen. Every Sunday, no matter what deacon you called on, it was like they all had to, that was part of like the deacon class. Okay, lead, guide, and direct us. Bless the missionaries on the home and foreign field. In Jesus' name, amen. We need to be more thoughtful, brothers and sisters. We shouldn't blow through corporate worship mindlessly or be endlessly distracted by sermons and prayers. Listen, as we enter corporate worship, we enter thoughtfully which means we don't go on autopilot at any point. We sing, as John reminded us this morning, with minds engaged and hearts engaged. We're not just... I mean, how convicting is it to realize you blew through six songs and don't even know what you sang? Or you blew through prayer, and I don't even know what he prayed about because I was too busy thinking about other things. Brothers and sisters, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's treating it thoughtlessly. Like, God, you're not worthy of my attention right now. Now, I'm not talking... I know we all struggle. Listen, we're walking by faith and not by sight, okay? I get it. And we're all... The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. So God is immeasurably patient with us and wonderful to us in that way. But we need to be reminded that when we gather together and when we're sitting under God's word, hearing God's word read, hearing prayers, participating in prayers, singing, all the elements of our worship that we're trying to do it with minds and hearts engaged, not carelessly, not thoughtlessly. So that's the first two ways that we take his name in vain, or that the third commandment is broken, by what is false, by assigning to his name what is false, and by assigning to his name what is frivolous. Thirdly and finally, by assigning to his name what is fake. What is fake. For instance, when God's name is used to endorse sin... God's name is taken in vain. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. And we're going to look at a couple of different passages in the early chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. So in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 28, we see what Paul is writing about what happens when men and women are given over to their sin and how they begin to behave and what, what, what kind of characteristics they take on. Here's verse what, beginning at verse 28. We'll read down to the end of the chapter in verse 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know, and here's, 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 here's a key verse. I mean, they're all, of course, all those are characteristics, but look at what happens in verse 32. Though they know 
God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, so it's, it's not even concerned so much with what the person does individually, although that's big, but also what they lead other people to do. So by the fact that they are endorsing this lifestyle themselves, other people are given approval that that's a good way to live. And so this, brothers, is what happens, and sisters, is what happens when, when, when someone is given over to sin, and what happens is that other people are given over to sin as a result of that person being given over to sin. And so God's endorsement is placed upon it. Well, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I do it? And so God's name. Well, that, that's dealing with the unbelieving Gentile world, right? They, they're clearly, they're given over to their sin. But what about the church? What about us as Christians? Well, Romans chapter 2 gets it a little bit more of up toward us. And this is the second point, when what we say doesn't match how we live. When what we say doesn't match how we live. Look at Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Paul writes, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See, that's where we can often find ourselves, brothers and sisters, not in the overt, worldly, but just the inconsistent hypocrisy of what we say we believe with actually how we live. We must not be like the false teachers of Titus chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul writes to Titus and says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Listen, if we are called by the holy name of God, we must not sully that name by living as if our conduct does not concern Him or His glory. Stephen Charnock says, It's a sad thing to be Christians at a supper, heathens in our shops, and devils in our closets. When God's name is assigned to what is fake, that is when we place God's endorsement on sin or when we say, when what we say doesn't match how we live, we are guilty of breaking the third commandment. So just a quick review and then on to some application. So what is the, God's, God's name is taken in vain when it is attached to what is false. That is whenever we attach God's name to lies, half-truths, or ill-conceived purposes. When we accuse him of things that are false or we attach his name to advance our own agendas. Number two, when it's attached to what is frivolous. That is when we use the Lord's name carelessly or we use his name thoughtlessly. And then finally, when it is attached to what is fake. That is when we place God's endorsement on sin or when what we say doesn't match how we live. Now let's go back to Exodus 20. And we'll conclude here. Because if you're like me, and having worked through this commandment, 
the second part of it should be terrifying. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And who among us here this morning can say we are guiltless in regard to the third commandment? I know I can't. In fact, Romans 3.19 summarizes this by saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, every mouth, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's what, that's what happens as a result, is that when the law comes and we begin to understand it in all of its dimensions, and we understand, you know what? I have taken upon myself God's name as a Christian, and even before that, God's name was given to me as an image bearer, and I lived totally contrary. When people looked at the mirror of my life, they didn't see God. They didn't see, wow, that's exactly what God's like. That's exactly what God's like. That's what it means to bear God's name, is that when people look at us, they say, yes, that's exactly what God's like. And none of us can say that we have lived up to that standard. If our reputation is a reflection of his reputation, which it is, we're in deep, deep trouble. And the Lord will not hold him guiltless, anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we've all done it, and we've all are guilty under it. So what hope is there? There is hope. Because there is a man named Jesus Christ, a God-man, who came to earth to live in God's name the way it should be lived. Behold, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I love that name. Don't you love that name? This is why Paul says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. That's what we all have to say after being exposed under the third commandment. Wretched man, wretched woman, wretched boy, wretched girl that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul goes on and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Praise His name. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, when God gave this command, and the other two before it, and the other seven after it, or six after it, seven after it, he knew that in giving that command, these people are not going to be able to do this because the law, weakened by the flesh, that is our sinfulness, we can't do it because we're born in sin and we're conceived in sin and we, we're living in sin. And so God has to do something internally and externally apart from us so that we can be rescued. What did he do? Middle of verse 3 of Romans 8. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh that is on the cross 
Brothers and sisters, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, all of your commandment breaking is gone. All of your falsely bearing God's name has been absorbed in the one who bared it rightly. And we can praise his name for that because we are not held guilty because Christ was not held guiltless. Christ was imputed our sin. God held him responsible for our third commandment breaking and we, by faith in him, receive his perfect righteous record of third commandment keeping. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. He said God sent his son and he condemned sin in the flesh. But why? That's not where he stops. He doesn't just say, well, good, Jesus paid for it. No, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, that we might bear God's name rightly, that we might live up and live into a worthy calling. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Live a life worthy of the gospel. That means bear God's name as a Christian. And this is why Christ died. Not only to purchase our pardon, but to empower us to, by the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body and live in accordance with the righteous requirement of the law. That's why. And so, brothers and sisters, here's the good news in conclusion. We bear the name of Christ as Christians. We have taken his name. Listen, how did you get saved in the first place? Romans chapter 8, or Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 tell you how you got saved. Call on the name of the Lord. We called on Jesus' name, and he saved us. And then in baptism, according to Matthew 28, verse 19, we were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we put on the Jesus jersey in baptism. We are identified with him. We have taken on ourselves his name in baptism. And so the calling then, brothers and sisters, as those who have called on the name of the Lord and been baptized into the name of the Lord is to live in the, live in the name of the Lord in a way that glorifies him. This is why Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, in everything you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can't do it in his name, don't do it. Don't do it. But do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We recognize that as Christians, we bear his name. Our reputation is a reflection of Christ's reputation. And so we want to do everything we can in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you for this word this morning that both convicts us but also comforts us. In our sin and apart from Christ, we stand condemned. We are all, if we were left to ourselves, guilty before your law. We confess that we have broken the third commandment innumerable times. There's, there's no amount of ways in which we can exhaust the ways in which we have borne your name falsely, frivolously, or fakely. We, we have done it times without number. And we, we shut our mouths before your word and we stand accountable and guilty before you. But we thank you that the story doesn't end there. That God sent his son 
into the world that he might condemn sin in the flesh and in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. For all those of us here this morning who are in Christ, for whom there is no condemnation, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you that we bear your name. We thank you that you have called us by your name. We thank you that you, we have called upon your name and you have saved us by Jesus' name. We thank you that we are baptized into his name and we pray that you would help us to carry your name faithfully. And when we don't, we would be quick to repent and acknowledge it and not behave in hypocrisy. Father, we thank you for the name that you've given us. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And for those of us here this morning who are yet outside of Christ, whether they be kids or adults, we pray that they would recognize that they need a savior and that they would run to Christ and call upon the only name that can save us from our sins, the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and in whose name we worship. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.